Hey, what's up everyone? It is Pastor Marcus here from the storychurchproject.com. Welcome to the Story Church Project podcast where our focus is how to redesign the local Adventist church to tell its story loud to a culture that is no longer listening. I hope that you're blessed by what you hear and that it inspires you to make a difference in your local church today. Happy Monday, everyone. I'm super excited to be here for another episode of uh, the Story Church Project podcast. And look, before we get started with uh, this week's episode, Why the Church is Failing, um, I just wanted to let you guys know that if you haven't already uh, noticed, I have responded to the humble requests of many of you who were saying, dude, we love the podcast. The audio needs to be better. <laughs> so um, I've got a new microphone and uh, it sounds a heck of a lot better. Uh, I'm pretty excited about it. So hopefully you guys enjoy it and it makes the experience of listening to this content a whole lot more enjoyable. Now, uh, today's episode is a bit different because um, what I'm actually doing is I'm sharing a sermon that I preached at the Livingston SDA Church uh, here in Western Australia probably three years ago. And the title of that sermon is Why the Church is Failing. And um, and I hope that as you guys listen, that um, you'll be blessed by what you hear and uh, that it will challenge you in, in many different ways uh, to think about what differences you can make in your local uh, Adventist church. So hope you guys are blessed. I'm going to turn it over now to the sermon and uh, and then I'll give you guys a farewell at the end. Happy Sabbath everyone. It's really good to see you guys here this morning and it's, um, it's really good to be here this morning. And um, I want to begin this uh, this sermon this morning, which is one that's really really close to my heart uh, with a word of prayer. So join me, Father in heaven, Lord, as we explore your word this morning, as we talk about you and what you have to say to us, my prayer is really simple, Lord. My prayer is that your Holy Spirit would be the one to speak. Lord, I'm a frail human being, and I really can't do justice to the words that you want to share with us. So I can't stand up here relying on my own strength and on my own talents in order to communicate your word. I need your Holy Spirit, Lord. And so as I begin this morning, I pray for your spirit to just be poured out, that we would hear your voice, that we would catch a glimpse of your heart, and that we could leave this place this morning knowing that we have been in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. I want to start out this morning by telling you guys um, a story that begins with a picture of me when I was 18 years old, and you may be surprised that I don't look that different. Um, so let me see if this works. Yep, there I am. That's me in basic training at, um, at 18 years old. Now... This picture is, um, it brings back some interesting memories for me because as you can see, 
this thing that I'm standing in front of is, it's, it's a wall locker, right? Everybody knows what a wall locker is. It's a wall locker. But there was something about this wall locker that was really irritating. And that is that in basic training, they have a blueprint for how everything in your wall locker is supposed to look. So for example, um, that hand sanitizer that you see there, it had to be right there. All right? Um, that exercise mat that you see there, it had to be right there. It couldn't be anywhere else. Um, all the clove hangers had to be two fingers apart, which as you can see, I wasn't doing very well there. Um, everything had to be exactly where the blueprint said it had to be. Not only for my wall locker, but for every single person in the barracks. So if you look into my wall locker and somebody else's, you shouldn't be able to tell any difference. They were supposed to look identical, which, um, which created some sort of humor and jokes because one of the guys actually hung a picture of his wife up on the, on the door here. So he printed one for all the guys in his room. So, they <laughs> so everyone had a picture of his wife. Um, but the very first time, the very first time that we did this, it was our first week in basic training. The drill, instruct, or the drill sergeants, they gave us the blueprint and said, you need to make your wall lockers look like this because at the end of the day, there's going to be an inspection and everything has got to be perfect. There can't be any error at all. So we got to work, right? Now, the barracks that I stayed in, it was a long hallway with about eight rooms. And in each room, there was about eight guys. And so each of us, we went into our rooms and we started working on our wall lockers. Of course, our bunk beds had to be perfect as well, right? You, you, you were supposed to like be able to flip a quarter on it and, and it just like, you know, it was supposed to bounce when it hit the mattress from how tight everything was squeezed. Um, so anyways, so we got to work. We, 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 we looked at the blueprint. We said, let's make this happen, man. So we, we set up our wall lockers as perfectly as we possibly could. To the point that we were looking at each other like, dude, we're totally going to pass this inspection, man. Like, I mean, there was, there was nothing. We could find absolutely nothing wrong. And then the inspection began. Now, our room was situated toward the back end of the hallway. So what we had to do as the inspection began was we each had to stand by our bunk beds um, at parade rest, which is if you, those of you who are in Pathfinders, you know what that is. You're just standing like this, right? So we're standing there. The first sergeant walks in with his intimidating drill sergeants. And um, which, by the way, the scariest drill sergeant I had in basic training was not a man. <laughs> Her name was Drill Sergeant Aubel, and I will never forget how intimidating she was. But anyways, um, so... So the inspection begins, we're standing in our room, we're about six or seven rooms down, we're at the very last one, but we're close to the end. First sergeant walks in with his drill sergeants, and the inspection begins, and all of a sudden, all we can hear is mayhem. Right? They walk into the first room screaming their guts out, and then the next thing you know, we can hear the soldiers in that room They've put them on the ground, they're doing push-ups, and every time you do push-ups in basic training, they make you say really self-depreciating things as you're doing them. 
So, so they're chanting these, I can't remember what they were saying, but they're chanting these really self-depreciating phrases, and, and we can just hear stuff being thrown. You know, we can hear wall lockers being slammed, mattresses flying off of the bunk beds, drill sergeants yelling, is this the best you can do? This is pathetic, you know, all this stuff. They leave the room, they go to the next one. And the same thing happens. And then they leave the next room and they go to the next one. And the same thing happens again. At this point, we're starting to lose our confidence. Because we're thinking, man, they can't all be that bad. They finally get to our room. Now, we did have a smidget of confidence. We did have a smidget of confidence left. And what happened next pretty much erased it. Um, the first sergeant walks into our room first. And the soldier who was closest to the door yells, Attention! Now, here's the problem. For those of you who haven't been in the military, you never yell attention for a sergeant. That's only for officers like captains and lieutenants. And the last thing that you want to do is confuse a sergeant for an officer. It is the greatest insult to a sergeant if you confuse him for an officer. So as soon as the first sergeant walks in, he yells attention, and we know that's it. We're done for, right? First sergeant looks at him like, what in the world is wrong with you? The drill sergeants walk in, mayhem. We're on the floor, we're doing push-ups. Drill sergeant walks in behind me, looks in my wall locker, grabs everything and just flings it out. Slams everything, all the equipment, opens all the drawers, throws out, you know, the canteens and, you know, the uniforms and the PT mat, you know, my poor hand sanitizer, don't know where that ended up. Everything was just all over the place. They're flipping our bunks, throwing them off of the beds. And by the time they left, our room was in shambles, and we had about five minutes to clean it all up before we had to be in formation. And I still remember the looks of the faces of the soldiers in my platoon when the first sergeant and the drill sergeants left our room. There was this look like, how in the world did we not pass? I mean, we did everything exactly as the blueprint said, we were meant to do it. There was no way we could have gotten it that wrong. And it was just this look of despondency, like, man, we failed. So anyways, life went on. And a few weeks later, as you go through basic training, you go through different phases. And as you go into different phases, you learn new things. And a few weeks later, as we went into the next phase of basic training, we realized we learned what had happened when one of the drill sergeants told us that particular mission was never, ever, ever intended to determine whether or not we could succeed. That particular mission was rigged from the very start for failure. And they did that because in that first week, those first few weeks of basic training, what they want to do is they want to destroy all your confidence. They want to destroy all your cockiness. They want, to take, they want to tear you down so that then they can sort of build you back up into the soldier that they wanted to build you back up into. But this is the point. No matter what we did, there was no way we could pass that mission because it was not intended to be passed. It was intended for failure. So as I was thinking about this story, I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 28, where he gives us a mission 
And he says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This is this mission that Jesus has given the church. And as I looked at that, I was was thinking about this experience, and I'm looking at this mission, and I couldn't help but ask myself, is this mission like the one the drill sergeants gave us that first week of basic training? Is it intended to fail? Or is it intended to succeed? And if it's not intended to fail, if it's intended for success, then why is it that so often it feels like we're just not succeeding? And the only logical conclusion that I could come to as I wrestled with that question is that maybe we still don't actually understand what the mission is. Let me say one more prayer. Father God, as I move into the text now, help us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles, if you're not there, to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. I want to explore this a little bit. I want to explore this this mission that Jesus has given us a little bit. Dig into it. See what can we find here that perhaps we haven't seen before or that perhaps we need to be reminded of. Matthew 28, verse 18. I don't know if I have it on the slide here. Well, I have the actual text reference, but not the text itself. Matthew 28, verse 18. I want to break this text down. I'm going to read it one more time, and then I'm going to break it down. From verse 18, moving on, where Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I love the way that passage begins. And I think sometimes when you've been in church for a while and you've been reading the Bible and going to Sabbath school and listening to sermons, it's easy to read texts without pausing to explore the depth behind some of the little words that are there. The text begins with this really interesting phrase, which is super easy to look over, and it is this, Jesus came and spoke with his disciples. And it's really easy to look over that because we're used to thinking of Jesus, the incarnation, coming into this world and and, and becoming a man, and he had just spent the last three and a half years with his disciples. But if you pause and really think about it, what the text is saying is that this timeless, spaceless universe maker is coming to speak with a group of men. This is a really unique picture of God. You don't see this picture of God easily in other worldviews. In most worldviews, at least the ones I'm familiar with, I'm not a worldview guru, but in most worldviews that I'm familiar with where there is a deity, he doesn't want to be bothered with you. And if you want to communicate with him, you have to transcend yourself. 
whether it's through some sort of transcendental meditation or some sort of practice or activity, somehow you've got to transcend yourself so that you can come into his presence. But the, the God of Scripture is a God who comes to us and speaks to us. And here's the reason why I'm emphasizing this so much, because everything else that Jesus says from this point forward will make no sense to someone who has never spoken to him. If you've never heard his voice, if you've never spoken to God, if you've never had an experience with him, this whole mission that he's given us won't mean a thing to you. The mission that Jesus gives his church only matters to those who have experienced him. Because when you experience his beauty, when you experience his story in your own life, that's when it begins to make sense. So I want to challenge you this morning because obviously I don't know everyone here and I don't know all your stories, but whoever you are, wherever you are, and whatever your story is right now, make the voice of God over your life a priority. Not just a one-time thing. Seek to hear his voice every single day. Jesus then begins to speak. And he says something that I find really weird. He says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now I want to pause there. Because I find what Jesus is saying here rather odd. Here is a group of disciples. This is, this is how I picture it in my mind, right? Because I'm a little weird. So I have like different ways of picturing things. But this is just sort of how I picture it in my mind, right? This group of disciples, they're just hanging out. And Jesus is, is walking towards them. And, and when he finally gets to them, he, just, he walks up to them and he says, Hey guys, I'm all that. All authority on heaven and earth. It's mine. I'm awesome. Yes. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, why in the world... Is Jesus saying this? You know, what, what does this have to do with the mission that he is about to give his disciples? Why is he telling them, guys, all authority in heaven on earth is mine? I mean, is he saying it almost as if I'm about to give you a mission, a command, and all authority is mine, so you'd better do it, right? Because if you don't, it's going to be bad. Is that what Jesus is doing here? So I wrestled with this for a long time, and I wondered, what, what in the world is Jesus actually getting at? Why does he begin his great commission, as we call it, with these words? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I prayed about that for a while, and then God led me to Ephesians 6.12, which totally answered my question. And here it is, guys. Check this out. Ephesians 6.12 says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. According to Paul in Ephesians 6.12, we are in a battle as a community of God, as the family of God, as a church. We are in a battle against dark spiritual forces in this world and in the heavenly realm. That's what we're up against. We're not up against culture like we sometimes think we are. We're not up against ideologies like we sometimes think we are. We're not up against people who are tired of church like we sometimes think we are. We're up against evil forces in the earth and in the heavens above. And Jesus begins his mission by telling his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. 
In other words, the only hope that we stand as a church of overcoming the spiritual forces in the heavens above and the earth beneath is if we we rely fully on the only one who has all authority in the heavens above and the earth beneath. But how often do we rely on ourselves instead? How often do we rely on our concepts and our ideas and our creativity? And I'm not knocking all that stuff. I think that stuff's great, and I'm going to revisit it in a little while. But most of the time when it comes, at least for me in my experience, when, when, when we're talking about outreach, when we're talking about reaching the world for Christ, there's so much self-reliance. And we start our meetings with two-minute prayer so that we can get to our two-hour strategizing session. And I'm guilty of that as well. But this text here really confronts me because it shows me that no amount of human power is capable of overcoming evil forces in the earth and in the heavens. There's only one who has authority in those two places, and that's Jesus. And if as a church we're going to succeed in the mission that God has given us, it's going to require nothing less than full reliance on Jesus. Full reliance on Jesus. And then he begins his actual mission. Therefore, go and make disciples. It's interesting. When I was uh, in Tennessee, I was a, a personal trainer for a little while. I got certified as a personal trainer. I almost died doing that. That was a horrible experience. Um, when I first started studying to be a personal trainer, because I really, I, I mean, I enjoy fitness, I enjoy exercise, and I figured, you know what, this would be really fun to do. So I started studying, you know, to be a personal trainer, and, like, I had to do anatomy and stuff, and, like, the very first time I saw, like, a human body anatomy, and I realized I have to memorize this, like, I wanted to puke. It was horrible, you know? Um, but somehow I managed. I almost lost my life, but somehow I managed, and, and I was able to pass the exam, and I started, started um, I, I, you know, training some clients and helping them get healthy and lose weight. And one of the things that this experience really drilled into my mind was an overwhelming hatred for the crash diet. I already hated the crash diet. But now I overwhelmingly hated the crash diet. So I want to pause for a second from the sermon to tell you, as a former personal trainer, stay away from the crash diet. It is horrible. They are all garbage. Because the concept behind the crash diet is you know, that you do some really unrealistic thing in order to drop tons of weight in a short amount of time so you can fit into a dress for a party or something. I don't know. People go on crash diets for all kinds of things. But here's the reality, guys. Like, if you spent all year eating pizza, you're not going to undo that by having cabbage soup for two weeks straight. All right? It just, it doesn't work. You may be able to drop weight, but usually you're dropping water weight or you're losing actual muscle mass instead of fat. And what happens with most people who go on a crash diet is that when the crash diet is over, they put on all the weight and then more. They're horrible. Stay away from the crash diet. I'm going to stop there before I get emotional. Um, there's only one realistic way of losing weight and being healthy. 
and that is that your lifestyle needs to be different. And this is what we call, and it's, it's sort of a cliche, but it's, it's, it's the only way really to go about it. This is what we call in the world of fitness and health a lifestyle change, right? You need a lifestyle change. You need to change the, the, the way in which you eat. You need to change your relationship with food. You need to change the way in which you, your activities, you know, how much TV you watch and how you spend your days. And you need to change the way in which you manage stress. There's all these different things. A complete lifestyle change is the only way to not only get healthy, but to stay healthy. But the amazing thing as I think about that, as, as much as I hate the crash diet, as I think about it and my experience having grown up in church is that most of the time when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to reaching out and telling the story of Jesus to the world, which I believe is a beautiful story that the world needs to hear, our evangelism is usually like a crash diet. It's unrealistic. It's unsustainable. It's exhausting. Most of the time, we tend to throw together this huge program that lasts maybe two weeks, maybe three weeks. It changes depending on where you are in the world. And everybody puts in like all this time and effort and energy and money. And by the time it's over, everyone is so exhausted that they just want to take a vacation. And when you come back the next year to do it again, everyone's like running away. Like, oh, I don't want to be a part of that again. That was horrendous, right? We, we, we go on these evangelistic mindset that is just like a crash diet. It's unrealistic. It's unsustainable. It's, it's, and it doesn't ever really produce anything worth the amount of effort it takes to pull it off. But what's interesting is when Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples, he's not talking about crash evangelism. So what is he talking about? Let me explain it to you as quickly as possible. Okay. There are three ways in which you can make a statement. You can make a statement actively. This is, this is my little grammar lesson here for you guys this morning, right? Actively, in the middle voice or in the passive voice. For the sake of simplicity, I'm going to ignore the middle voice today because it's not really relevant. I'm just going to talk about the active and the passive voice, right? So an active voice would be something like, it would be something like kneel through the ball, right? It's an active voice. Because Neil is the subject, and he's acting on the ball. So it's active, right? Neil through the ball. Active voice. A passive voice, I can say the same exact thing in the passive sense, and th the way it would sound would be, the ball was thrown by Neil. Does that make sense? So now it's no longer Neil as the subject performing the action. Now it's the ball, and the action is being performed on it. Right? So the ball was thrown by Neil. That's passive voice. The interesting thing is that in the active voice, you can issue a command. So if I'm saying that statement, Neil threw the ball, I can turn that into a command. I can say, Neil, throw the ball in the active voice. But there is no way to issue a command in the passive voice. It's impossible. No matter how loud I say, the ball was thrown by Neil, it will never be a command. It's not possible for something that's in the passive voice to be a command. What's interesting is when Jesus said, therefore go and make disciples, in the Greek, the word for go is not active voice, it's passive. He is not issuing a command. So what is he doing? 
a more accurate way of understanding what Jesus is saying here is this. As you are going, make disciples. In other words, Jesus is not issuing a command and saying, listen, you need to go sell everything that you have and, you know, sell your house and quit your job and move to India and go make disciples. No, what Jesus is saying is as you're going, as you're, you know, as you're going to work, as you're going to the shop, as you're going to the park, as you're going on your, on your cycle, you know, those of you in here who are into cycling, you cycles who go for like 100Ks, um, as you're going, as you're doing your thing, as you're living your life, as you are going, wherever you are going, make disciples. So Jesus is not calling us to give everything up in our lives and go and be pastors and evangelists, right? There's only a few people who can do that. But what he's saying to every single one of us is, as you're going, Wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, let your focus be the story that Jesus came to tell. So what this means is that we cannot look at Jesus' mission as something that only pastors and evangelists can accomplish. It's something that all of us are meant to be a part of. As we're going through life, each of us is meant to make disciples. So Jesus goes on and he says this, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Now this part sort of annoys me a little bit. It annoys me. It annoys me because, because like I love culture and I, like, I'm, like I'm not a culture guru or anything. I just, I like it. You know, I love different cultures and how they do different things and you know, their dresses and their outfits and their music and all this stuff. I just find it fascinating, right? So I find it interesting that Jesus has given this command. He says, I want you to go and make disciples, and I want you to make disciples of all nations. But the amazing thing is he never actually says how. And what's weird about that is that nations, all nations, you know, like you've got all so many different cultures in this world, and you can't reach them all the same exact way. They have different customs. They have different styles. They have different ways of thinking. They have different perceptions. They have different logics. So like, how do you reach all of them? He's told us, go and reach all nations, but he never actually says how. Never spells it out. And I found that really interesting because we see this tension even in Scripture. In the book of Hebrews, the author is writing to the, to the Jewish people in the church, appealing to them to stay committed to Jesus, and he uses the Old Testament as his, as his focal point. But when Paul goes to preach to the Greeks in Mars Hill, he doesn't use the Old Testament, he uses their own poetry as his starting point. He had the same message, but he had a different method. And when it comes to answering the question, why is it that it sometimes feels like the church doesn't seem to be really succeeding in the mission that Jesus gave it, I think that this is the, one of the portions that matters the most. Now, before I say what I'm about to say, allow me to give a disclaimer. I have discovered that disclaimers are often necessary so that I don't get angry emails afterwards. I'm not the kind of, you know, that like, there's, like, there's, like there's preachers that go around like, I don't care who I offend. 
I will preach the truth. You guys ever met those guys? Like, they're really weird, right? Like, they just say, yeah, yeah, I'm just going to say it like it is. I'm not that kind of guy. I do care who I offend. I don't like to offend anyone. Um, I like having lots of friends. <laughs> um, but sometimes some things just need to be said, and I hope I can say this as lovingly as possible. As a church, we need to get over our allergy of anything that's new and different. This nostalgic commitment to what we've always done is ignorant and immature. We need to get over our allergy to anything that is new and different when it comes to reaching the lost. In my experience, that tends to be one of the main reasons why the church fails at its mission. Because we want to do it the way we've always done it. And it doesn't work, but guess what? We're being faithful. Really, are we? I don't think so. I found these um, quotes. I'm going to share with you guys a few quotes that I've, that I've found really interesting from one of the pioneers of our church, Ellen White. Um, with regard to this, I love these quotes, so I just want to share them with you guys just because I, like, I found them so thought-provoking. Um, why isn't this... Can you go to the next slide, dude? Yeah, my clicker's not working anymore. I think my battery died. All right, there we go. Um, this is from Evangelism. Great book. If you've never read it, good book. I recommend it. Um, it says this, new methods must be introduced. New methods. Not the same old stuff. New methods. God's people must awake to the necessity of the time in which they are living. God has men who will call he will call into his service men who will not carry forward the work in the lifeless way in which it has been carried forward in the past. In other words, what was done in the past is not always the way it should have been done. Um, next one. Whatever may have been your former practice, this is also from evangelism, it's not necessary to repeat it again and again in the same way. God would have new and untried methods followed. Break in upon the people. Surprise them. Do something different. Do something new. Think outside the box, right? Let every worker in the master's vineyard, every worker, this isn't just me, Pastor Marcus and Pastor Paul or the elders, every one of you guys, let every worker in the master's vineyard study, plan, devise methods to reach the people where they are. We must do something out of the common course of things. We must arrest the attention. There's a few more, guys. I'm not going to go through all of them, but over and over again, you see this, this advice given in her writings and and, and I wholeheartedly agree with it, that we can't just keep doing the same old thing the same old way and expecting to succeed in the mission God has given us. When I first came to Australia, I had all these people telling me, dude, the secular people in Australia are impossible to reach. They're just impossible, man. They don't want anything to do with church. They're, you know, they're anti-institution and they're postmodern. They don't want anything to do with church. And I was like, oh, man, that sounds like a huge challenge. Like, I'm going to go to Australia and this is going to be interesting because... You can't reach people there. So, so, yeah, so I came to Australia, and I started jumping around the churches, you know, and, and just visiting around and stuff. And after about the first month, I started asking myself, are the people really that hard to reach? Or is it us that's the problem? Because everywhere I went, everybody was doing the same thing we've been doing for 100 years. And I wondered, where in the world is the creativity where in the world is studying and planning and devising new ways 
of sharing the same story that Jesus called us to share. Now, some people freak out when you say this. Some people say, oh, yeah, well, you know, if, if, we, if we do new things, we might mess it up. Well, then let's mess it up. Let's make mistakes. There was a church, I'm not suggesting that we need to do this at Livingston. I just found it quite hilarious. There was a church that actually had awards every year for the person in the church who came up with the worst idea for outreach. <laughs> and it was a way of encouraging people to keep thinking outside the box, right? Um, some other people say, well, if we do new things, we might open ourselves up to deception. I hate that. Because Satan doesn't own the market on innovation and creativity. God is the creator. God is the innovator. It's his world. It's his market. So we need to get over our allergy of anything that's new and anything that's different. And we need to embrace the responsibility, each and every one of us, the responsibility to discover new ways to reach this world. This isn't simply something that pastors do. This isn't simply something that, you know, Derek and those guys up at the conference sit down in a room and think about. This is something all of us are meant to think about. We're all meant to rely fully on Jesus as a lifestyle. We're all meant to, as we're going, wherever we're going, to be sharing the story of Jesus as a lifestyle, not an event, not just at the dare effect, right? Lifestyle. Lifestyle creativity. I'm calling each and every one of you guys to invest in learning the culture, to invest in studying the culture, to invest in devising new ways to reach people. And last one, Jesus says, I'm surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. But before I get to that, I want to read, um, I want to read this. We're almost done here. This is what Jesus says. Teach these new disciples, verse 29, to obey all the commands I have given you. I love this. Because Jesus calls us to baptize and then he calls us to teach. And historically, in my experience, usually when someone gets baptized, we're like, ah, oh, they're baptized. They're good to go. Wash my hands clean, move on to the next guy, right? Jesus has not called us to dunk people in water. He's called us to lead people on a journey of spiritual growth. And the biggest challenge that the Adventist church has had in recent decades has not been new converts. It's been retention. We're baptizing, and more people walk out the back door than those that walk in the front door. And did you know, I mean, I don't know what the status, stats are like here in Australia, although I wouldn't expect them to be much different from how it is in America. More churches are planted out of division than new converts. More churches are planted because this church started bickering with each other, oh, we're going to go plant another church, than because they've actually reached new people for Christ. And when we're reaching new people for Christ, they're coming in and they sit in the chair and nobody cares for them and nobody calls them. They got dunked. We're good to go. They don't make any friendships. They don't have any community. You only see them on the weekends. They start to fade away. Nobody notices. Next thing you know, they're back out the back door. And no one has any idea. When I was in Tennessee, I met a guy. I talked to a guy who went to a church in the area. I won't name the church because these go online. So, um, um, Who belonged to a, a church in the region that was, um, it had a reputation for being on its deathbed. 
And we were talking, and he said, three years ago, we had an evangelistic series. We baptized 20 people. Right? They had about, I think, maybe close to 60 visitors coming. 20 of them got baptized. And not a single one was left three years later. And it wasn't because, like, they moved state. It was because they just, they came in, and they walked out. And nobody noticed. When someone gives their life to Christ... You know what happens most of the time? I know I'm speaking to the choir here because most of you, I'm assuming most of you here have given your life to Christ. I'll tell you my experience. When I gave my life to Jesus, my battles with sin and temptation got worse. The struggle got more intense. When I gave my life to Jesus, things didn't suddenly turn peachy and rosy. Things got worse. I had peace, yeah. I had hope, yes. I had a confidence and in, 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 in a new beginning that I wouldn't trade for anything in the world, but this internal battle with myself got worse. And if there hadn't been people surrounding me, leading me through that journey, I don't know if I would be here today. Jesus tells us, baptize, but then teach. Teach them to obey all that I have given you. This is lifestyle mentoring. This isn't just for pastors and elders to do. This isn't just for the worship committee or the ministry of care team. This is for every single one of us. And then Jesus says this, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He finishes his mission by giving us this promise. But here's the truth, guys. The truth is that with the current way in which we as a church, and I don't mean we like Livingston, I mean generally, we as a church do outreach and evangelism, we don't need this promise. The current way in which we generally do outreach and evangelism, we don't need his help. We can do it on our own. Anybody can throw a program together. Anybody can take out a budget and fly someone over to talk. Anybody can hand out flyers, right? But when we're talking about lifestyle reliance on Jesus, when we're talking about lifestyle evangelism, when we're talking about lifestyle creativity where you're devising and thinking and your whole life is revolves around building the kingdom of God and when you're talking about mentoring people and helping them and helping them grow, all of a sudden you realize like, holy cow, this is really hard. This mission that Jesus has left the church is overwhelmingly difficult, especially in a day and age where we're bombarded with so much and we're so busy paying bills and building this and doing that. How do you even find the energy to be a lifestyle evangelist, to be a lifestyle creative thinker, to, to do what Jesus has called us to do. It almost seems impossible. And this is why Jesus gave us this promise. I am with you always. Because he knew that the mission that he had left us is an overwhelmingly difficult mission. The current way in which we interpret the mission, we don't need this promise. But if we fully understand what Jesus is calling us to do, then we realize, holy cow, I need his help. So today, I want to challenge you guys. I want to challenge you guys to embrace lifestyle reliance on Jesus. 
I want to challenge you guys to embrace lifestyle evangelism. I want to challenge you guys to embrace lifestyle creativity and lifestyle mentoring. I want to challenge you to allow your whole life to revolve, not around your job, not around your plans, but around building the kingdom of God. And as you do that, remember that Jesus is with you every step of the way. I'm going to invite um, Heidi, I think, or Nicole, who's going to um, sing a song for us. And then we'll have a closing prayer. So there you have it, guys. I hope that that was insightful, inspiring, challenging, all of the above. I'm going to wrap it up now, but I want to invite you guys to come back uh, for next week. Next week's episode is going to be amazing. I've got a special uh, mystery guest that I'm going to be interviewing, and I think you guys are absolutely going to love it. So I'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's latest episode of the Story Church Project podcast. I hope you were blessed. If you haven't yet had a chance, I want to invite you to head over to thestorychurchproject.com and subscribe to the newsletter. Not only will you get the latest updates every week, but I'm also going to send you a free gift straight to your inbox. You don't want to miss it. I'll catch you on the next one.